So we're continuing our uh, series of studies in the Gospel of John. I'm going to ask if, has anyone got any water? Just a wee, thank you. Uh, today we reach chapter 2 <clears throat> and the story of the wedding at Cana in Galilee. But first of all, I'll recap the story so far and what a story it's been. Remembering that this gospel, the gospel of John, is quite unlike the other three gospels. The gospels of Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are sometimes called synoptic gospels. They offer us a synopsis of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, a summary of the events surrounding his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. But John's gospel is not a summary. It doesn't begin with the nativity or a family story. It begins instead explosively. In a deliberate echo of Genesis chapter 1, John takes us back through space and time to the very beginning, to the, the very beginning of everything, to the time before time where God exists in uncreated light, in the all-sufficient love and harmony of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. His purpose, John, is to draw our attention in particular to the Son, the Logos, the Word. He wants to shine a powerful spotlight that will illuminate the Word of God, without whom nothing that was later made was made. My water supply man, thank you very much. And then, having taken us back to the origins of everything, John carries us forward again to the point where God chooses to intervene in human history, to the time when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, to the time when out of His grace and truth, God became a man, a human person, recognizable to us because He is one of us, acceptable to God because he is God, bringing his light into a darkened world. The Son of God comes into the world he has created, but the world he has created doesn't recognize him. And we heard last week from Lionel the lens to which John goes to help us to recognize him, to distinguish him from John the Baptist, to make it clear that he is not Elijah, to emphasize and underline them that the man we are dealing with here is no ordinary sinful creature, but an altogether different manner of man, an exceptional man. Begotten, not created, the only man who is also God's beloved Son and in whom he is well pleased. So today, as the story moves on to a wedding in Galilee that Jesus attends with his mother, and the disciples here already began to gather around him, we should already be alert to John's purpose in writing his gospel. And I was quite taken aback by the fact that Declan started today with the reading from chapter 20, because as John confirms right at the end of the book, and I've got written down here, <laughs> his purpose throughout in recording these events is that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, 
and that by believing we may have life in his name. So what is it about this wedding incident with which he begins chapter 2? This amazing and singular incident that none of the other three Gospels relate. What is it about this event that is intended to convince us that Jesus is the Messiah? (coughs) And what can we learn from it about the kind of life the Messiah intends for those who believe in him? The first clue we get is that Jesus chooses to be where we find him. His presence at a wedding suggests he's comfortable to inhabit that vividly social time of fun and celebration and laughter. A Jewish wedding in New Testament times was especially convivial. A marriage supper of this kind might go on for days at a time. And from what we read elsewhere in the Bible, Jesus is never one to shy away from social occasions, to shun a party, to refuse to mix with the ordinary people, the publicans and sinners. The life we find in Jesus' name, then, isn't lived out in mournful monochrome. Yes, he is a man of sorrows, deeply familiar with grief, but he is also the Lord of the fullness of life, who, as we will see more and more in this passage, facilitates all that is colorful and good and infuses it with his joy and his love. We might go further and conclude that Jesus' presence at the wedding indicates his intention that the full life lived in his name should be lived in family, in loving relationships with others, in communities where marriage and family life help to nurture new life and to shelter those becoming increasingly frail. And in addition, we can't ignore the fact that his presence at this wedding also conjures up for us some of the words that we find in the book of Revelation to describe the ultimate union between Jesus and those who believe in him. That consummation to be celebrated at the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride, where the angel tells John to write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So, Jesus' presence at a wedding provides the backdrop to the story and begins to tell us something about who Jesus is and about the kind of life he wants us to share. But John's not concerned simply to tell us that Jesus was at a wedding. In urging us to believe that Jesus is God, the Messiah, He wants us to pay attention to what he does at the wedding. For John, the changing of the water into wine at the wedding at Cana in Galilee is the first of a number of major signs through which John says at verse 11, Jesus revealed his glory and engendered belief amongst his disciples. These signs and their significance are the means by which Jesus confirms two things, who he is and what he is like. First of all, then, who he is, the Word, the Son of God, the Messiah, but also, secondly, what he is like, his nature, the qualities that he possesses. And of course, by implication, the qualities Jesus possesses are the very qualities of God himself, because Jesus is God, 
he reveals God to us. One of the reasons he's called the Word is because he speaks God to us. He makes the nature of God intelligible to us. No one has ever seen God, we read in chapter 1. But the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So let's look first of all at the identity of Jesus, who Jesus is, through the miraculous sign he performs at the wedding and through other supernatural signs he will describe later. John is asking, what manner of man is this? Who can possibly accomplish the things that Jesus accomplishes? And John's answer is, of course, these are things that only God himself can do. We certainly cannot. Ordinary human beings like ourselves might manage on a good day to just about put one foot in front of another and navigate our way more or less safely through the natural world. But we have no power to control it or change it. As the Bible says, we can meditate upon it for as long as we like, but none of us has the power to make ourselves even a tiny bit taller or to extend for a moment the span of our lives. The signs that Jesus gives us are signs, therefore, that Jesus is no ordinary man, quite the opposite. He is an exceptional man who is not constrained in the same way that we are. He controls the elements, he calms the storms, he walks upon the waters, he even turns water into wine. And these, John tells us, are signs that if only we would trust what he is telling us, if only we would believe the lives of the apostles and the, and the record of Scripture would convince us of his deity and cause us to inquire what it, what it is he offers and what he requires of us in response. The sign of the water changed into wine tells us then about who Jesus is. John has already hinted that if we understand Jesus correctly, if we understand that he is nothing less than the Word of God made flesh, then there's no great surprise that he is able to turn water into wine. After all, he has already told us that the Son of God made everything that is, every single thing that exists in creation. There is nothing that has ever been made that the Son of God did not make. That he should be able to make wine out of water is merely a small illustration that should confirm for us the view that this man is in fact the divine creator. But for you and I, these miraculous events are much more than just small illustrations. They're an endless source of fascination for us, not just because they underline the vast gulf between God and ourselves, but because the telling of these transports us to a different dimension, out with our ordinary experience and expectations. They are quite literally wonderful, signs full of wonder. They engage us at some level with the supernatural, not in the dark and dull and destructive terms that our culture tends to deal with the supernatural, but in terms of a positive, creative, imaginative power that we long to possess, but which, of course, eludes us. The poet Norman McCaig provides a description of this type of human ambition as he sits across the table 
from the woman he wishes to impress. I look across the table and think, fiery with love, ask me, go on, ask me, to do something impossible, something freakishly useless, something unimaginable and inimitable, like making a finger break into blossom, or walking for half an hour in 20 minutes, or remembering tomorrow. There is a part of us that longs to be able to create the unimaginable and the inimitable, a power we find, like the folks who attempt to fly with artificial wings, is utterly beyond us in our fallen, earthbound creatureliness. But the power to create the unimaginable and the inimitable is integral to the very nature of God the Creator and Jesus His Son. And as we draw close to Him, whether as a wedding guest in Cana or a 21st century disciple, He brings the unimaginable to us in His inimitable way. And He offers us a share in the unimaginable generosity the Creator's love brings to us. He offers to transport us to His heavenly and supernatural kingdom. We begin to understand here that just at the point where the miraculous sign is pointing us towards an understanding of who Jesus is, the Son of God, it also begins inevitably to point us towards what God is like. It begins to dawn on us that it is in God's nature not to hold himself aloof from us, but to come and sit quietly among us, to rub shoulders with us, and become one of us, to quietly confer his miraculous blessing, not in the freakishly useless way the poet imagines, but in the practical, generous, transformative way that is indicative of who he is. We begin to see the self-denying humility that allows God not to cling to his glory and his separateness, but to empty himself, to become human, and take the form of a servant or a guest at a wedding. The whole event of the wedding at Cana begins to center then on the nature of God, on what God is like in his very being, and upon the fact that he brings all of himself, the whole of his being, to his encounters with us, not sparing himself, not holding anything back. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, whose very nature is this preposterous love that he has for the peculiar and disobedient human race. At the wedding in Cana, then, and in many other places throughout the Bible, this preposterous love is symbolized for us as a gift of wine. Psalm 104 in describing the blessings of God's love for creation, says, He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts. This is wine as a symbol of God's love for us and for the joy that results when we receive His love. There is, of course, water that is made into wine at Cana, and the contrast here between the water and the wine is telling. 
<clears throat> and speaks of something very important about the quality of God's love for us. For water is a good thing. It's essential for life. Without water, we will not long survive. There's nothing bad about water. But when God is trying to communicate to us something about the nature of his love, he doesn't symbolize it through water so much. Water symbolizes many things in the Bible. But when it comes to love, the banqueting table is not set out with endless supplies of bread and water. His love is not concerned merely with our survival. His love is intended to bring us joy and pleasure. And so to convey the joy and pleasure of, his, of God's love, the Bible uses the symbol of wine, which, unlike water, is not really necessary or even particularly useful in helping us achieve anything or accomplish things. The Bible uses the symbol of wine to paint a picture of the abundant life he wishes to confer in us through his love, a life full of joy and gladness and fulfillment. This wine speak to, speaks to us of abundance, of superabundance, of the cup that runneth over out of sheer generosity. Even as we remember at communion the blood shed for us in love on the cross, we do so as instructed through the symbol of wine. This is the nature of God's love, the preposterous love that longs to give good things and superfluous gifts to peculiar people who don't deserve them. The kind of love that restores our relationship with him. Listen to this description we are given of that love in Isaiah 25. On Mount Zion, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And so, as we move towards the conclusion of this sermon, let's make special note of the nature of God and of his love as related to this story of the wine at the wedding. First, there is no place here for any old wine or any old wine. No cut price offers. Only the finest of wines will do. Wines that have aged and matured. God's love for us isn't an overly sweet and sentimentalized expression of love. It is instead a deeply profound and genuine love that comes directly from the heart of God. Its quality is unrivaled. It is unquestionably the best. The guests at the wedding are astonished by the quality of the wine that Jesus provides after the initial stock has been exhausted. They expected the second batch to be inferior, but instead their expectation is stood on its head. The quality of the wine at the wedding is an expression of the perfect love that God has for us. Secondly, <coughs> excuse me. Secondly, however, there's no shortage of this highest quality of wine. Whether served to us at a lavish feast or at a simple meal, it is by its very nature abundant. 
the quantity of wine that Jesus creates at the wedding from the water poured into the six stone jars is estimated to be between 600 and 900 of the types of bottles of wine that we are familiar with today. In other words, the supply is inexhaustible. There is therefore no end to the supply of God's love. It's not limited by height or depth, as Paul writes in Romans. The love of God that is in Christ Jesus is unbounded and free. The abundance of God's love is emphasized by the fact, and and Lionel touched on this last week, that John tells us that the event takes place on the third day of Jesus' public ministry. And just as the opening of the gospel has echoed the beginning of Genesis in the beginning, so here too we hear the echo of the third day of creation, the day in which God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. In the context of the third day, Jesus' turning of water into wine can be seen as confirming the sheer fruitfulness and diversity and bounty of his creation. Thirdly, however, there is another third day we obviously need to take account of, and that is Easter Day. And Easter Day tells us two more things about God's love. Not only is God's love of the highest quality and infinitely abundant, it is also incalculably expensive and utterly transformative. It is incalculably it is incalculably expensive in that it is required it requires the word the logos the creator of the world to take all our sins upon him and to die on the public gallows its cost to him illustrated by the water and the blood that flow from his side on the cross directly from his broken heart It's also utterly transformative in the sense that the Son of Man confirms God's provision for us, not just by dying for us, but by overcoming death by his resurrection on the third day. It is God's love for us that first submits to death, then has the power to overcome death, and is then able to offer us an unrestricted share in the new and eternal life that he has secured on our behalf, offering to adopt us into the heavenly and supernatural realms as his sons and daughters. And this changes everything. Jesus changes everything. This is the real, deep, profound, transformative love of God that doesn't just keep us alive, but saves our souls. It makes all things new, and changes us forever. And so at the wedding in Cana, Jesus' changing of the water into wine takes on a further meaning, pointing us ahead to that future third day, Easter day, and prefiguring the way in which 
he will overcome death and the way in which he changes death into eternal life. In closing then, how are we to respond to this? How are we to apply this to ourselves? How are we to make the connection between this, this flawlessly perfect, generously abundant, incalculably expensive, utterly transformative love of God, and this, this imperfect, selfish, cheap, and shabby individual that he wants to bestow, bestow such a blessing on. It's Mary that has the answer for us. Do whatever he tells you, she says to the servants at the wedding. Do whatever he tells you would be her message to us. Today, if we were to encounter her at a wedding or some social event, even as we encounter her words right here in this place. Do whatever he tells you is the command of Scripture throughout all the ages. To have and to experience the extravagant joy and pleasure he has planned and obtained for us through his love, the only requirement is to trust and obey. It requires our faith and obedience. And that is the response he will gently persist to obtain from us for as long as we have ears to hear. Let's pray that we will answer his call today. Amen.